Hello and welcome to another episode of the NMA podcast. I'm Natasha Turner, the Features Editor, and today I'm joined by Jack Gilbert, Senior Reporter. And later on, he will be speaking to a very special guest that we have on this week to talk about whistleblowing, so do stay tuned for that. But before we get to that section, let's quickly say what's hot and what's not this week. So Jack, what is hot this week? So Natasha, hot this week. Well, it was the Sunday Times Rich List at the weekend. Of course. Everyone's favourite day of the year. Uh, and there were some familiar faces in there, some, some, some characters our readers will almost certainly recognise. Um, some people have done very well out this year. They've, they've seemed to have made a, a lot of money. Um, but one man in particular seemed to do the best out of all of our uh, contacts and, and, and people we speak to was Terry Smith, who has jumped up um, the Sunday Times Rich List for a second year in a row now. Um, he, his wealth rose £30 million to £250 million in total. Um, and the fund manager cl- climbed um, from 513th in the 1,000 strong ranking to 480th. So, yeah, Terry Smith had a very, very good year, as, as he normally does, really. Yeah, kind of that is a big jump. What would you do with 250 million, Jack? Uh, I would probably um, start a fund, start a UK equity income fund. Oh, that is a boring answer. And I would outdo Neil Woodford <laughs> and see how I'd compare to, to his performance the well, last few years. Well, there you go. Years. Aim for next year. Potentially, next year yeah. Although I think it might be a bit more stressful if it was only my money in the fund <laughs> and no one else's. True. I, I think it would be more stressful than managing other people's money in, to a certain extent. And what's not hot this week? So, not hot. Uh, is the chief executive of Barclays, um, James Staley, who was fined by the Financial Conduct Authority last Friday. Um, This was very big news um, because he was the chief executive of Barclays who Mm -hmm. has been fined £648,430 for his failures to uh, respond and deal with a whistleblower. The whistleblower raised concerns through an anonymous letter um, in 2016, and Mr. Staley then tried to unmask and, and find out who, who who was trying to blow the whistle. So the FCA have come down very hard on him. He's been issued with this fine, which is unprecedented, really, for for a chief executive of a bank mm-hmm. in recent history, anyway. And what's also interesting is the fact that the this is the first time the FCA have really um, kicked into gear their senior managers regime, which is whereby they're going to really focus on targeting the top dogs at banks, investment management firms, and later IFAs, instead of, you know, finding the firm, they find the individual, Mm -hmm. and this is their deterrent system they're putting in place. Um, And Mark Stewart, the the FCA's Executive Director of Enforcement, um, said, you know, that (coughs) gave quotes for for the story that chief executives must act with a high degree of care and prudence at all times. Whistleblowers play a vital role in exposing poor practice and misconduct in the financial services sector. It is critical that individuals are able to speak up anonymously and without fear of retaliation if they want to raise concerns, um, which are very true true comments and, and, you know, really important statement he's made. However, in today's podcast, we're going to be talking to um, a whistleblower chief executive, someone who, who knows all about this and how the FCA deals with whistleblowers and who has unfortunately faced, uh, uh, you know, the FCA have treated incredibly badly over the years. So I'm delighted to say we are joined by the Connaught whistleblower, George Patelis. Now, George, who was born and raised in the US, 
was the chief executive of bridging loan firm Toyota, which the Connaught Fund invested in. Much of the investment in Connaught went through IFAs, and when Toyota went closed down and went into liquidation in September 2012, investors were facing £100 million in losses. However, months earlier than this, in January 2011, George contacted the FCA's predecessor, the Financial Services Authority, bringing in vast amounts of evidence of alleged fraud and financial insolvency into the FSA's offices. However, George's concerns were largely ignored by the regulator. He was not classed as a whistleblower, despite being the chief executive of the company he was blowing the whistle on. Um, and what followed was months and months and years of, of a crusade by, by George, which resulted in the, the FCA issuing him with a private apology in 2016 and the princely sum of £500 for his failings. Since that time, the Complaints Commissioner has also issued a very damning report into the FCA's handling of the case, which has then resulted in a third-party review of the, the way the FCA and its predecessor dealt with the whistleblower. Subsequent to that, the Capita, who were the authorised corporate director of the fund, were issued with a £66 million uh, penalty for its handling of the case. Um, and we're now delighted to have you here, George. Thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me, Jack. So, so George, uh, obviously this, this has been going on for, for a number of years. Um, can we maybe just bring it back to the start and maybe talk to us a bit about your role in, in Toyota back in the 2000s, what you did at the company and what, what the company did to start with? Yep. Um, yeah, I was hired as the chief exec of, of Toyota to take what was at the time a relatively small family-run business that, that uh, was successfully operating in the short-term lending market through loans through uh, commercial developers and, and auction finance and, and a few other uh, asset types. Um, I was brought in to, the, the business was, was primarily funded through the, the Condit uh, Series 1 fund at the time, which was expensive and not uh, as, the, the, the covenants within the, the facility were somewhat restricted so that it could only lend on certain property types and, and different areas of, of the UK. Uh, I was brought in to try to secure some traditional bank financing through warehouse facilities, which was my background. And uh, in order to do that, the business needed to turn it from a, a family-run business into a, a, a you know, a, a proper business, if that's the right word, something that uh, a banker in the city would expect to see if he walked into, you know, the front door. So the majority of my time, from the time I started in, until this blew up, was spent putting the right policies and procedures in place, having the right staff in place to approach the, the, the bankers that I knew in the city to look for warehouse financing. And, uh, and the, fund, the fund was invested through IFAs, IFAs invested their clients. That's right. It was a useless fund and um, the, the, they were sold through IFAs you know, in the market. The Conant had their reps who would speak with IFAs and the IFAs would then discuss the opportunity with their clients. But I think it was in early 2011, so January 2011, you noticed things were, were, not, were not as they should be within, within the, the corporate framework. Um, what did you notice and then what, what did you, how, how did you react to this? Well, it was in early January of 2011. Uh, I had recently hired a new CFO to 
that had started the business literally right after the, the, the holidays. So had probably been on the ground for less than two weeks. He was trying to uh, balance the accounts. Um, he wasn't able to do that. He would reconcile certain things and, and they would match and other things wouldn't match. And the more that he did it, the, the bigger the, the gap got between where the profit, year-to-date profit was published and what he found, it was a, a, a difference of well over three million pounds in the, the negative. Started doing a little bit more digging and it was uncovered that there was effectively a 20 to 25 million pound black hole money that, that should have been in the business that wasn't in the business. Um, we, we looked into that. It, it didn't make sense because it was a small company. Uh, I called an extraordinary board meeting for the following day. The, the, when this information came to light, it was in the evening. And at that board meeting, uh, I presented the existing directors with what we had found. And um, to my surprise, they admitted that they knew that it was going on and uh, said it had been going on for years. And then once you know, kind of, you noticed things were were not right. They, 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 this, they, there were these huge issues. Then you you went to the FCA or the or yeah, the FSA almost immediately. Well, prior to going, uh, yes, but pr prior to going to the FCA, I needed to, you know, have a, an idea of exactly what we were talking about the the quantum, and what what the issues were. So, the, the first thing that I did once it was you know, I, I knew that it was really happening and we were really in bad shape was I hired a firm of lawyers to come in to advise us on what we needed to do. There's there's very specific rules and guidelines that you have to follow as a, you know, as an approved person, as a chief exec, as a director to avoid trading whilst insolvent. Um, they came in, they advised us that the, the best thing that we could do was to hire some forensic accountants to take a look at the book to go through that. That was all done um, on a Friday. The following Monday, we met with the accounting firm, uh, BDO. Uh, they agreed to come in and do the audit. Um, we went back and forth on the money, um, which was, uh, we weren't you know, uh, loaded with cash at the time. Um, when they came in to start the audit, some other things had come to light, which was how, what the mechanism was for the money being misappropriated. And it was my opinion that there was no way that the company could come out of that. It was too big a hole. It, it wasn't something that they could trade out of. Um, at that time, I, I said that we should get the insolvency lawyers in because we were clearly trading whilst insolvent. Um, as I expected, the, the rest of the board didn't agree with me. Um, and at that point was when I told them that I needed to contact the FSA to let them know that I had serious concerns as a chief exec over the viability of the company, uh, which was my requirement under principle 11 as an approved person. So, I mean, that was obviously, you know, you, you decided to make, you made this decision to reach out to the FSA in January 2011? That's right. You know, I mean, that obviously that must have been a really big, big moment for you. I mean, were you, were you, was that always what you, 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 was that a difficult decision to make? Well, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it, was a, it was difficult in the sense that I had a very clear picture in my mind as to what was going to follow after I did that. It certainly wasn't difficult 
to, to make the call because it was the right thing to do. Um, it was my duty to, to do that as, as a director and as a chief exec and as an approved person, but it was also my duty just as a decent person. It was my duty to my wife and my kids and my brothers and, um, you know, my parents and my friends and, and you know, former colleagues. So in that sense, it, that, that part wasn't different, difficult. I knew that I had to do it, um, but I knew that um, it was going to be, you know, very difficult times going forward because of what, what that meant. There were a lot of very innocent people that uh, were going to get hurt and they were going to get hurt badly. And, and the, the phone call to the FSA, what, what happened after that? How did they respond to that? Well, it was, it was a pretty basic call. I told them, you know, what I thought that the, the company was, uh, their, their finances were at risk and that I believe they were trading uh, whilst insolvent. Um, I had my head of compliance at the time came back to my flat with me to, to sort of support me, but also to, to make sure that I said what needed to be said. Um, and they were, um, I, I would say, almost indifferent about, you know, what I said to them. Um, they asked me if I could email them what I just told them, which I did. I, I offered to, to come in and talk to them. Um, they said that wasn't necessary, and that was that was it. I, I didn't hear from them again for another couple months when I received a letter, and they asked me to come in to meet with them face-to-face -face in, in Canary Wharf and so to bring evidence. This is March 2011. That's right. So there was that meeting with the FSA in, in March 2011. Can you tell me about how that, how that went? Well, that, you know, again, it was another sort of interesting meeting because they had asked me to bring all the evidence that I had, which... Uh, I was able to get a lot of evidence prior to leaving the business and um, I literally went into that meeting with a suitcase full of evidence and you know they asked me I, I was you know I probably four hour meeting with there were three people from the then FSA um, and at the end of the meeting I offered them the evidence and uh, they told me that they uh, they didn't. They didn't need it, or they didn't want it. They they made a a really bizarre comment that I should check with my wife and check with my lawyer to see if I could do that. If I should give them the evidence, and I told them that clearly I had done that. But also, as a whistleblower, you know, I was entitled to to give that to them. I was afforded certain uh, privileges as far as turning over evidence. Uh, they wouldn't take it, and I sent them. Um, I sent them evidence when I, I returned home to the states, and I sent them a, a you know a, a pretty detailed file of, of evidence that I thought they would want to see, which they had asked me for, and I sent that to them, and um, that was pretty much the last I ever heard from them. And, and what what reason did they give you for not wanting to, to see more of the evidence or the evidence you? Uh, they you not had? nothing really other than they thought that I should check with uh, with my wife and and with my lawyer. But I told them that I'd done that. They they still didn't want it. I to this day I don't know why they didn't take it because they in, in the letter when they asked for the meeting they specifically asked me to bring any evidence that I had. So so after this point, George, I understand things kind of moved or. Things began to happen surprisingly with Toyota and with with Connaught. So, what there was voluntary requirements placed. The FSA eventually 
decided to place requirements on? Yeah, I, the, the, the first thing that the, the FSA did was they issued a, a, a public announcement. Um, and again, this is, this is after, this would have been after I met with them and also after they received my evidence that I mailed to them, they issued a public announcement that basically said, you know, hey, this, this Conant uh, Series 1 fund is not as safe as a bank account. You should, you know, check with your financial advisor. And um, considering what I told them um, for them to say it wasn't as safe as a, as a bank account was uh, pretty staggering. Um, but then, yeah, they, there were two changes of permissions that the, that, that um, the FSA, uh, sorry, where they varied the permission of, of, of Toyota. One of them was they revoked Toyota's license to grant regulated mortgage contracts. They didn't announce that. Um, that to, to see that you would have had to get on the, the FSA's main website and click seven or eight yeah. times just to get to that notice. Um, and then the second thing that they did is they added another variation, which I'm quite sure that this is probably the first time in, in the history of financial services in any country that the, the variation said that when Toyota received a redemption on a loan, they had to return the money to the bank, you know, the, the owner of that money. Um, so basically what that said was that you would only put that requirement if they, somebody wasn't returning the money. Yeah. Um, they also decided not to publish that. So the two most significant things that came out of that, which were revoking the regulated license and the variation of returning redemption money was not published. But no journalist wrote about it. No nobody one. knew about it. It was it was buried on the website on the FCA's on the website. FCA's website. Correct. Um, and I'm quite sure that had either one of those been public knowledge, investors would not have continued to pump money into Toyota via Conant. And it was a lot of money that was going in at this point. So I think in the Complaints Commission report, it refers to a figure of eighty million pounds. Yeah, I think when when I when I initially went to the FCA in, well, you know, certainly when I met with them in March of 2011, the, the figure was somewhere between, you know, 20 to 25 million. What the, what the size of the fund was? Sorry, the, the, the size of what the money that was unaccounted for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and this would have been on a business that, that had a total book of under 150 million. So, it they never would have been able to trade out of that. From the time that, that I went in to see the FCA and then ultimately when Toyota and Conant blew up, which I think was September 2012, yeah. an additional 80 million was invested after I went in to the FSA and gave all this evidence that was, well, at the time, uh, lost. And effectively lost until recently when there's been the announcement of a settlement, although that, that money has yet to be paid. And they, if, if they'd reacted differently to you, you blowing the whistle, if they'd responded differently? Well, there's certainly several things that they could have done. They certainly, worst case, they should have suspended the fund and gone in and, and looked at see what was going on. Um, they could have taken me in there with them. It would have taken five minutes to show them what was happening. Uh, they, they didn't do any of that. Um, you know, they're, the part of the, the loan book was regulated 
they were regulated contracts, as I said earlier, and the FCA was responsible for that. And um, it's my belief that the majority of what they did related to their role as a regulator of those loans and, and how they could best come out of those contracts with, with the least amount of damage. And also, so initially, Capita, who were regulated by the FSA, were the authorized corporate director of the fund. That's right, yeah, they, they were, they were the, the, before I started, they, they had already left uh, the business. You know, at the time, uh, it was, I think, the, announced that it was for strategic reasons. Uh, later found out that they effectively found the same stuff that I found. Uh, and instead of going to the FSA and reporting what I reported, which was their, their duty under Principle 11 as well, they simply resigned and said they were resigning because there was a change of culture and they were moving strategically in a different direction. And then Bluegate came in as the ACD after that point. That's right. And, and I'm not, my understanding is that they also, Capita did not inform Bluegate of what their concerns were and why they were leaving the fund. So, so fast forward things, George. So the, the fund was liquidated in 2012. Yes. So, you know, obviously this must have been, you know, a very difficult time for you. I mean, how, how, what were your kind of emotions and, and, and like at this point when, when things were going? Well, there, there was, I, first of all, I knew that it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. And I knew that the longer that the fund was open, the more money that was coming in uh, was going to be lost. It was, that was innocent investors' money. Um, I, I, was, I was sure of that. Um, clearly, I was not happy when, when it happened. I mean, there was part of me that, that I, you know, wanted to think that they would be able to find a way out of it, either through a, uh, an angel investor or some other method where maybe some of the loans would be forgiven. But um, as a realist, I knew that probably wasn't going to happen. So I, I, I fully expected that. What I didn't expect was from the time that the businesses went bust what happened from from that time until well for the next you know probably four or five years and what, what well, was that? it it just as more information started to come out about what happened you know the FCA well, I'm not sure when they became the FCA whenever whether it was the FSA or the FCA uh, really started to take a very defensive uh, position um, they they said things about me that, that weren't true. Um, they allowed the business to, you know, whether it was Tayuda or Conant, publish things about me in the press that they knew were false. They let them get away with it. You know, one of the things I didn't mention before was when, when the FSA revoked Tayuda's regulated license, Tayuda and Conant both went out in the press and put a real positive spin on it. Hey, we're getting out of the regulated market. They, they made it sound like it was a voluntary thing. So everything's really good. We're just going to focus on this. Th those were blatant lies. And the FSA did nothing to stop them from publishing those lies. They knew they were lies because the, the license was revoked. It was not a voluntary decision to, to pull out of that market at all. Um, it was a similar thing that, that they did with um, allowing the, the redemption money to be used and put that announcement where they didn't announce in the, um, you know, public domain. Um, 
so they, they just became, they started to take this real defensive posture. Um, they would publish Q&As and in, in the Q&A, they would say that they met with me, um, and I, but I could have done more. I should have gone to the police and so forth. And you'd mentioned earlier that they didn't classify me as a whistleblower. Well, that, that kind of came out towards the end, maybe, you know, a couple years ago when um, as part of my complaint to, to the FSA for their handling of, of the case, they didn't follow their own whistleblowing guidelines, which specifically in my case, they claimed that they weren't the investigative authority in, in this case and that um, what their responsibilities are, if they followed the whistleblowing guidelines, they needed to refer me to the person that was the right person, the investigative authority. Well, they didn't do that. So and they admitted fault for that eventually, didn't well, they? Well, they admitted fault for that, but they, they came up with some nonsense about uh, they never considered me a whistleblower, d despite referring to me as a whistleblower in, in multiple um, articles uh, on the floor of parliament and loads yeah, of other places. Subsequently, it was, you know, it was everywhere. Yeah, correct. Um, but they, because they didn't follow that, um, that's why they didn't say, that's why they said I wasn't a whistleblower. They, I think they referred to me as a, a senior executive who was providing information, some bullshit. So translation like, is a whistleblower then? Well, what else is it? Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's kind of no middle ground for that. And I mean, obviously, George, this must have been a, a very kind of distressing time for yourself, personally, given given what was going on with with Tayuda and with the FSA. I mean, um, obviously, this must have had a, a big impact on on you personally as well. It's had a tremendously negative uh, impact on me. Um, you know, I you used the word earlier when you made the introduction that that I was on a crusade and just to prove that I was right and to make sure that the wrongs that were perpetrated against so many people were, were made right. And, you know, it's it's a difficult position to be in as a whistleblower. You you know, I, I had evidence and knowledge of a lot of things that I wish I didn't have. Um, you're, you're kind of put in a position where you have to make a choice. Do you stand by what you think is the right thing to do and, and try to get some justice for the people that were getting screwed through no fault of their own? Um, and if you do that, there's going to be implications on your family. Or do you say, you know, I've got to ignore what happened over there. There's only so much I can do. And, you know, go back to being, you know, the husband and father that I should have been um, while this was going on. And, you know, say, you know, sort of tough luck for the investors. But, um, you know, I made a choice to do whatever I could do. To, to help the investors, and that had a uh, you know that had a negative impact on my family, very negative. Um, you know, my priorities were not where they should have been. They weren't with my wife and kids. They were with the investors. And um, you know, my story is not unique. I've spoken to other whistleblowers. I've read things, and you know, that's that's what happens. You know, the um, you know in the end, you know, I was proven right. Um, however. You know, it's a pyrrhic victory. I mean, the the cost associated with the victory does not outweigh the damage that it's caused in my 
you know, my personal life, you know, whether it was, you know, health issues, which you sort of get over, whether it's not being able to find a job, whether it's, you know, plowing through all the money that you had saved. Um, but, you know, most importantly was, was what I put my wife and kids through. That's just, um, you know, those are, those are things I'll never be able to get back. Mm. And I know you mentioned previously that you struggled to find another job after this point as well because of the, the kind of the well, association. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when, when I would tell people what, the, obviously they were going to ask what happened, and I made a conscious decision to not remove anything related to the to Taita from my uh, CV or LinkedIn because it would make it look like I was guilty. So, you know, people wanted to talk about it. When I would tell them the story, uh, their reaction was, well, man, if that really happened, these guys that did it would be in jail. The company would have been shut down. It would be all over the press. And my response was, yeah, man, that's exactly what I thought was going to happen. But, you know, it hasn't, but it will one day. And um, you know, that one day took a hell of a lot longer than I ever thought it would. But, you know, we have, things have, there have been kind of shoots of green in all this. I suppose, I think 2016, the, you made a formal complaint to the, F, the FCA about their, their predecessor and their own handling of the situation. Yeah. And they, well, and, and let me just stop you there for a second. I, I make no distinction between the FSA and the FCA. You know, there's a different letter in the middle. That's it. They're the same people and their responsibility for what happened. They, 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 they don't get to abdicate that. You know, I've, I've used the analogy in the past that, you know, if, if a woman commits a crime and then gets married, you know, her, her record's not expunged just because she has a different last name. And the, I'd use the same analogy with the, the FSA okay. and the FCA are okay. exactly well, the, the, the same. FCA, the FCA, in 2016, they, they wrote you a letter, um, am I right, to say that they had admitted fault after a complaint that you'd, you'd well, sent in? Well, they, uh, I had raised a lot of key points that in a complaint to the FCA. In a complaint to the FCA, which was part of the process that I had to undertake. And um, they, their response to my complaint, my complaints, I should say, there, there were, you know, it was, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12, you know, specific complaints, um, you know, about things like not announcing the regulated revoking of the regulated license and, and things like not that. Not classing yourself as a whistleblower. Not, not, not classifying me as a whistleblower. They had all this evidence that I gave them that, that you know, a five-year-old could have looked at and said, there's something going on here. We need to check this out. They, they did nothing. Their response back to me was um, absolutely bewildering. Um, that was the first time they said that I wasn't a whistleblower. They said that the information that I gave them, the, sorry, the evidence that I gave them didn't really show anything. They had some concerns, but didn't really prove anything, which was just a complete, and, and you know, another lie. I mean, it was just complete nonsense. You know, part of the evidence that I gave them was an admission letter from the guys that were taking the money that, yeah, we took it and we've been doing it for a while. Um, and, you know, there were a few other things. So I had to, the, the sort of next step in the, the very British process is you have to then escalate it to uh, the complaints commissioner. But, and but the FCA, I mean, they did apologize to you in that letter. Initially. Not at that point, they didn't, no. Um, they offered you 500 pounds. Sorry, they, they, they offered me 500 pounds, an ex-gratia payment for, uh, I think, in being inconvenienced, um, which... 
was was uh, you know probably more insulting than anything they had ever done. And I, to this day, I'm convinced that they sat around a table and like, you know, what else can we do to piss this guy off? And someone's like, yeah, I know. Offer him 500 pounds. That'll really get him going. That's but, truly, truly remarkable. I mean, uh, and and they did admit to some errors at this point. Um, the, the yes. Yeah. I mean, not not very not very um, specific and, and, and not not the, the most egregious errors that they made. But but, you know, some of the ones that you know, and, and I, look, I think their response where they admitted some wrongs was like we could have handled that better or we should have done this. And it was mainly around the amount of time that it, you know, that it took to, you know, make something happen. Um, but it was it wasn't until after the, the my complaint escalated to the complaints commissioner, um, and he upheld every single one of my complaints against the FCA that they, well they they say they issued a, a private apology to me. So the, what was so the, the the complaints commissioner? This is in so this is in December or November 2016 now. 20, November 20, uh, yeah. 20, 2016. I should know the date, but yeah, that I sounds about I, right. If I, that sounds about right. It, November 2016. Okay. So the Complaints Commissioner issued a hugely damning report of the way that the FCA uh, handled yourself and, and the Connaught situation. Um, I mean, among, among the things they suggested, um, they, they said that um, Despite a long build-up of evidence pointing to the risk of serious consumer detriment, it, the FCA, failed to act in a coordinated fashion and failed to involve other agencies when it clearly ought to have done so. The Complaints Commissioner, they, they recommended to um, the FCA may have a, undertake a third-party review into its own handling. Well, well, and also issue a public apology to to yourself. That's right. Well, the the you know prior to the complaints commissioner releasing his final report, the report is sent out in draft form to me. Was sorry, was sent to me and the FCA to review it just for, I, I guess, to make sure that it's accurate, but also if there's anything that you really had a strong position on, and what what the FCA had agreed to do. Uh, was they proposed that they would undertake an internal review of what happened, and I I objected to that. Rightly so. Well, yeah, I mean they they prove in time and time again they are unable to police themselves, and you know the conflicts of interest you just keep stacking up. So, um, I actually suggested that for for that report to have any sort of meaning to it, that it must be conducted by a third party. Otherwise, it's it's meaningless. So that's that's when it was agreed. They agreed to um, have the third party review, and then yes, the second point was that the uh, complaints commissioner uh, recommended they issue me a public apology. They privately apologized to you previously. Well, they privately apologized, um, but they didn't mention my name. No, no, but they privately apologized in a letter to you, or they. It, it was in it was in their complaint. Sorry, in the response to my complaint yeah. that was. You know, it was apologies for the amount of time it took to do certain things, but um, the the apology that was was for me, uh, it it didn't mention my name, it didn't mention Tayuda, it didn't mention Kana, it just referenced case numbers and so forth. So, but yeah, they the 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 complaints commissioner recommended that they issue a public apology, and they refused to do that, which was kind of the I don't know the last 
slap in the face because um, it didn't seem like it was that big a deal to, you know, just hold your hand up and say, yeah, we, we got this one wrong. And the Complaints Commissioner, I think, has since that, that point has said he's disappointed that the FCA refused to issue that public apology. He's criticised the FCA for doing that. That's he, right. He's also, I, I, I remember at a meeting last year, I asked him if he thought that your case and the way the FCA had handled it sets um, a detrimental um, message, sends a detrimental message to, to other would-be whistleblowers. Um, just kind of stops other whistleblowers from coming forward because of the way they've handled the case. And he said he hoped it wouldn't, well, but, but he wasn't. But, you know, I mean, it, it doesn't send a good message to whistleblowers out there. Yeah. Um, and also, George, I mean, so since that that's happened, other things have happened. I think the biggest development we've had um, in the last recent months was in the like, end of last year, the capital were fined or issued a penalty by the FCA for £66 million because of their role initially with the Connaught Fund. Yes. So can you tell me a bit about Well, that? yeah, I mean, that, that, that £66 million was on top of, I think, roughly $20 million that Capita had already paid. Um, you know, look, I, I think the significance of that fine, at least as far as, as I'm concerned, um, is, you know, first and foremost, I'm, I'm thrilled that the investors are getting their money back. That was what I had hoped all along. And that's, that's a big reason that I was on this crusade because I knew I was right. And, um, you know, again, I wouldn't do it again because of all the, the carnage that has been left behind, but um, it certainly was the right thing to do. So I was happy that that, that, that happened. And then the other part that I was pleased about was that prior Prior to the report being issued as to how the the regulator, the FCA, justified the penalty in 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 this, I think it was a sixty-some page report. Um, it there were several significant things in there. Number one, there was no mention of IFA mis-selling, and that was the FCA and the FSA's mantra all along. Well. Any losses are down to IFAs uh, for mis-selling the product, and that was just categorically untrue. There was absolutely no evidence to support that there was any mis-selling. Well, th there, there may have been mis-selling, but not in, in a you know a higher proportion than any other uses fund. Um, but it, it certainly wasn't systemic, and it wasn't something that was widespread, and, and there was no evidence of that. Despite that, that was a position that the FCA took constantly. That was a position that the FSCS took. Uh, FAS, everybody took that position that, that it was down to IFAs. I, there were several IFAs that went bankrupt because of that, um, and it was just, it was just flat-out wrong. Um, and the, the second part that was... I guess somewhat gratifying for me, but also extremely disappointing was when I read the the sort of justification for the for the fine that the FCA levied against Capita. The the reasons that they listed were almost in many cases identical um, or close to what I had written in my complaint to the FCA that they came back to me and said it was nonsense. So evidence that I gave them that they said didn't prove that there was anything going on, they then used that exact evidence to justify their fine against Capita. So 
you know, it, it, it's just, you know, again, it was difficult to see that because it, it was frustrating, but it also, you know, I knew that I was right all along. And um, again, there's no, there's no glory for that other than, you know, I can look in the mirror and, and say that I did the right thing and that, that I, you know, I was proven to be right. Um, although they, they won't admit that. I've asked them to please, can you at least say that, yeah, you were right. Um, but obviously that's not coming. If they can't apologize, they're not going to admit that I was right. But the, the, the very evidence that I turned over to them was used to justify the fine uh, against Capita that, that when I gave it to them, they said it didn't prove anything. And I mean, um, with, with the situation as, as it is, I mean, you know, looking, reflecting on, on the, the recent case of Barclays CEO, I mean, what, what, is, what, what do you think about the way that the FCA handles whistleblowing? I mean, obviously they've fined um, the Barclays CEO £640,000 for failing to deal with whistleblowing. But. Yeah, well, look, I think that's, that's interesting. And you, you read a little bit uh, from, you know, Mark Stewart's quote in, in the beginning of, of the podcast that um, effectively that, that CEOs need to be held to a, a higher standard and, you know, kind of more is expected of, of CEOs. Um, I guess it's good to see that they're taking it seriously now. I mean, they certainly didn't do it when, you know, I was chief exec of a regulated business and went in there with evidence. And the way that they treated me is, is you know, the polar opposite of what they're saying what in, in, in the press release related to uh, Barclays. Um, but yeah, look, it's good. I think anything that, that kind of puts the spotlight on that, um, you know, is probably a good thing. And I think you also mentioned that that's the first fine under the new regime, which, um, you know, there's always going to be a first, and that's, you know, the fact that it's a whistleblowing one is is poignant. Mm. And, I mean, looking at the situation now, I mean, what, you know, what would you, what would you like to see happen to your own case? I mean, surely, well, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of unresolved issues that, that are still kind of going on. You know, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know. Um, I haven't really thought about that. I mean, my, my biggest concern now is that... Um, you know, I need to make things right with my family. You know, I spent a long time um, focusing my energy on something that that would personally benefit me from, um, you know, really just just a moral and you know personal satisfaction perspective, knowing knowing that I was right and that that I played a part in in helping people get get their money back, um, but. You know, the most important thing to me is my family and making sure that everything's good with that. And, and um, you know, as I said earlier, I, you know, I took my eye off the ball with respect to that for a long time. And, um, you know, if, if I can say in a, you know, in a year or so that everything's cool with my family, then, you know, I'll be a happy man. George, uh, thank you so much for, for coming in. Thanks, Jack. It was enjoyable. Thank you very much. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to receive our podcast every Thursday on SoundCloud and iTunes. Um, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at New Model Advisor. Thanks, for everyone, for listening.